I'm going to be reading this morning from John chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. And Jesus is speaking here, and he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Now, if you've been around for a few weeks, you know that um, we've got a big arch over a long series of messages, and we have a smaller arch over a shorter series of messages, and the big arch is called... The greatest of these is love, and it'll probably last through June. And the Little Arch is a four-Sunday series called The Depth of the Love of Christ. And the point of these four weeks ending today is to see the love of Christ. It all began four weeks ago. In Ephesians 3.18, where Paul is praying for the church and for us that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, would have power, it, it takes power, have power to comprehend what is the love of Christ, the height, the depth, the length, the breadth, and to know the love of Christ, that passes knowledge. Now, that's impossible. Except for God. All things are possible with God. And so, we have set ourselves an impossible task, and have been straining against possibility in these four weeks. Paul prays that we would know what is beyond full comprehension, namely the love of Christ. And that's my goal again this morning. That that prayer would be answered in our midst. And that our eyes would be opened, our hearts would be made sensitive, and that we would discern the depth and the height and the length and the breadth of the love of Christ for us. Now, there are four ways in the Bible, hence four messages, that Christ has revealed to us the magnitude and the depth of his love for us. The first is in its costliness. It says Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Himself. That's what it cost. The cost was his life. Not a few inconveniences, not a little bit of time, not an arm or a leg, but his whole life. He laid down, and not in an easy way, like a bullet to the head, piece of cake, but in the most horrible way of suffering, namely to be hung on a cross and to suffer for hours until you die. The costliness of his death testifies to the depth of his love for us. Secondly, 
The Bible testifies to the depth of the love of Christ for us in the undeservingness of those of us who receive the love. You remember Romans 5. Christ died for the ungodly. Take that word ungodly. That word is an awful word. Every one of us, apart from the, the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God in our lives, is ungodly. And ungodliness, according to Romans 1, receives wrath from God. So, how are we then to be saved from wrath of a holy God? And the answer is, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous man. Yet, perchance for a good man, one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Having been reconciled by his death, while we were yet enemies, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So we've got ungodly, we've got sinners, and we've got enemies. And that's what we are when he dies for us. So the love that he has for us is deep in proportion to how little we deserve it. And so he says, I didn't die for you because you looked attractive to me. I didn't die for you because you deserved my love. I didn't try to find somebody who is fit to be loved and then all of a sudden find out at the end, oh my goodness, they're no good. I'm going to have to die for them now. That's not the way it was. He knew exactly how undeserving we were. The third way that the Bible commends the depth of Christ's love to us is the lavishness of the benefits that come to us. As last week. First John 3, 1 John 3.1 Behold, look at this. Look at the kind of love that the Father has for us. And the Father and the Son are of one heart here. Look at this kind of love that we should be called, we ungodly, we sinners, we enemies, that we now, through the death of Jesus, should be called children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, of everything, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 20, all things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And he lists off things. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, life, death, things present, things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The magnitude of someone's love for you is also measured not just by its cost, not just by your lack of desert, but also by the lavishness of the benefits that come to you through the love. He really loves us. He really, really loves us. Now, there's one more way that the scriptures use to drive home the depth of the love of Christ for us. And that is the freedom of his love. The freedom of his love. If someone does something good for you because they have to and they don't want to and their mama makes them do it or whatever. 
and you try to figure out their heart toward you, you don't get excited about that love. There may be some kind of love there, but if they don't want to do it, if their heart's not in it, if they're not free, their love is smaller than if they're really free, really eager, really willing, and really desirous, and they do it. Because they want to do it for you. Now, those of you who have been around for a while know that the heartbeat of my life is the vision of reality called Christian hedonism. And one of the main claims of Christian hedonism is that you really need to care about your own joy. That is, you need to pursue your joy and not be indifferent to it or you will not be a loving person. Now, when I say that in groups for the first time, you never heard that before. Big question mark comes on their faces. If they're a group of Christians, big question mark. And then they say, they put it into words, it goes like this. That sounds exactly backwards. That sounds upside down because we've always been taught, or at least I thought, love means renouncing my quest for joy so that I can do good for others. And now you're telling us that in order to do good for others and be a truly, authentically loving person, I have to pursue my joy and not neglect it. And I say, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And they can shake their head. I don't get it. And the way I help them get it is by asking a very simple question. I ask it to you now. When somebody does something good for you, do you feel more loved when they do it begrudgingly or eagerly? And in 20 years of asking that kind of question, nobody at least has said out loud to me, I really feel loved when people do things for me begrudgingly. When they really don't want to do them, then they do them. Because there's some kind of moral moral thing they've got to live up to and they do it anyway. It's like me going to a hospital bed and I walk into some dear old saint and she looks up and says, Oh, Pastor John, I can't believe you came. Why did you? And I say, I'm a pastor, it's my duty. This is not going to communicate love. The right answer is, makes me happy to be here. I get a lot of strokes from people when I go to visit them. I care about you and I find fulfillment in being with you in this hospital room. I've never had anybody accuse me of selfishness when I say that. Because they feel honored that I get pleasure from ministering to their need. If you renounce your quest for joy, you destroy the very thing you're after. Love shrivels. In order for love to be real and deep, it's got to come from a heart of eagerness. 
I want to do this. I love doing this. And to the degree that that's not there, the depth and energy of the love goes down, not up. And so it was with Jesus. So it was with Jesus. If Jesus did not want to save us, even at the cost of his own life, I think there would be a question mark over the authenticity of his love. The Bible does not call you to renounce your joy for the sake of others. It calls you to find your joy in the good of others. Have you got that? The Bible doesn't call you to renounce your quest for joy for the sake of others' good. It calls you to find and pursue your joy in the good of others, even if it costs you your life. The resurrection means you can find joy in dying for people. We will be raised through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's go to Gethsemane for a moment. About 17, 18 years ago, Ron Kreps, our good brother, my friend Ron, was in a class of mine that I taught over at Bethel. And we were wrestling together and Ron's very bright Students, and we were button heads over this whole issue of Christian hedonism at some levels, and he was helping me learn, and I think he was refining his thinking about it, and the issue was Gethsemane. And Ron was pressing on me, wait a minute, John, wait a minute. What about the tears? What about the sweat coming out of his forehead like blood? What about the words, oh God, if there's any way besides death? What about that, John? And I conclude from this talk that we've had and letters exchanged, I I concede the physical pain of Calvary did not become physical pleasure. Okay? The physical pain of Calvary and the struggle of soul and the agony of abandonment did not cease to be agony did not cease to be struggle and did not cease to be pain. Don't want to minimize any of that. And that's what Ron helped me see, that I don't talk in ways that minimize that. But we agreed, and you'll see before we're done this morning, that at the bottom of this majestic soul of Jesus Christ, at the bottom, at the essential core of his being, he was being sustained and carried by joy. In pleasing his father and loving your soul. He was being carried by joy. I love doing what my father calls me to do. I love reflecting the glory of my father. I love defeating the arch enemy of my people's souls. I love bringing them from death to life and sin to righteousness and hell to eternal heaven. I love what I'm doing. That's there. In the pain, in the struggle, in the abandonment. 
beautiful, deep energy of eagerness and willingness and freedom. And that's what I want us to see this morning. Jesus wants this morning for you to hear the words, the costliness of my love, the beneficence and largeness of my love, your undeservingness and the greatness of my love because of it. All of that is the greater because I was free in it and I wanted to do it. Nobody forced me to do it. That's the message this morning, okay? I want you to hear that. He is saying, I love you with a loud shout of, it was free, it was free. Nobody is making me do this for you. So let's go to the text and let Jesus say these words to us now. Verse 17, we'll start there in John 10. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. That I may take it again. Let's just stop there. Now, I want to make sure you don't stumble over this because it would be easy to come to a verse like this and say, the father loves him because he died for us and rose. So the father's love is based on the son's act of obedience. How did he feel about the son before that? I can imagine somebody asking a question like that. And let's just make sure that we understand that in John 17, verse 24, Jesus prays to his father and says, Thou hast loved me with a love before the foundation of the world. The love of the father for the son, God the father, didn't begin to love God the son at the cross. From all eternity, the son and the father have been one in essence. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they loved each other, and the reason the Father loved the Son is because the Son reflects back to the Father the fullness of His perfections. And when the Father looks into the soul of the Son, what He sees is glorious magnanimity and beauty and love and justice all mingled in perfection. And the cross is simply the outworking or the manifestation of who he is. And therefore, when it says the father loves me because I do that, it means the father goes on loving me because he saw that in me from the beginning. He knew I was that kind of a person. So don't think that the the love of the father for the son somehow gets started at Calvary. They have had an infinitely energetic love relationship from all eternity. One of the reasons we believe in a trinity is because there must be love to be a person. And to love, you must have a receiver of the love. And the perfect recipient of the love of the Father is the perfect image of the Father in the Son receiving the love. And the reason we're not a binity but a trinity in our faith is because this energy flowing back and forth between the Father and the Son carries so much of the personhood of both of them that it stands forth as a third person of the trinity. I know there are people in this room who don't believe in the trinity. This is an awesome reality. Be open to this. Think again about this. Let's go to verse 18. Here's the freedom of Jesus in his own words, in his love for you. No one has taken it. No one takes my life away from me. I lay it down 
on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. I tell you, there aren't many more awesome, authoritative, powerful, divine words in the Bible than those. What in the world does he mean by saying, nobody takes my life from me? What about Judas? What about Annas, the high priest? What about the mob? What about the crowds crying, crucify him, crucify him? What about the soldiers pounding the nails into his hands and the sword into his side? They're all taking his life from him. What in the world do you mean, Jesus? Nobody takes my life from me. It looks like a thousand people are taking your life from you. What does he mean? What is this word? Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. Here's what he means. He means every time it looks like somebody has me cornered, I'm not cornered. Every time it looks like I'm trapped and constrained and the arm is behind my back, there's a mob or there's a king with power or there's soldiers and I'm weak. I'm not weak. I am not trapped into doing this for you. I wasn't forced to die for you. Nobody takes my life from me. Nobody. It means that every step of the way toward Calvary was chosen, embraced, welcomed, and could have been avoided with one snap of his finger. Why does he say this? Why does he bother to stress this truth that I'm free, I'm free in loving you? It's because if it weren't true, if Jesus were somehow constrained, if he had to say, somebody does take my life from me and I do not lay it down of my own accord. In fact, I don't want to die for you, but I have to. It'd be over, folks. I mean, even if I got my sins forgiven that way and even if I escaped hell that way, whom I could spend eternity with. That man? It really matters whether he's free or not. It really matters whether he wants to do this for you. And that's why he is so explicitly saying to you here this morning out of this text, nobody is making me do this. Nobody is taking my life from me. I am laying it down in my own accord because I love you freely. Freely. That's how eager he is for you to understand this. Now, let me sweep another stumbling block out of the way here, if I can. I see at the end of verse 18, the words, this commandment I have from my Father in heaven. I see that. And I can imagine somebody say, ha, see that? His Father made him do it. His Father made him do it. Like, clean your room. I want to clean my room. Well, clean it anyway. You can't go out tonight unless you clean it. Oh, because I want to go out tonight. I don't care about obeying you. I don't care about having clean rooms, but I care about going out tonight. And so I'll, I'll do it. I am not impressed with that obedience. It does not warm my father's heart. However, if I find on a Saturday afternoon a clean room with no battle on Saturday morning, in fact, no words, fuck, this is new. 
This is different. This is a new kind of affection for a father or a mother, especially a mother. It matters, folks. It really matters that when the father said, I want you to die for my people, the son didn't say, I don't want to die for your people. Here's the point of that last comment. This commandment I have for my father, don't read words in isolation in Scripture. Just what, a few words earlier, he said, I lay my life down of my own initiative. Now take that and put it beside this commandment I have from my father. Now, give him the benefit of the doubt here and interpret the way you'd like to be interpreted. And what does it mean? It means my heart and God's heart are one heart. When he said do it, I was ready to do it. It was coming out of my heart before he said to do it. So in eternity, as they planned this whole thing, and the father called the son into his council chamber, as it were, he began to open his mouth and say, I have a... The son said, I know what he's going to say. I've already got it. Because they're totally one. They're totally one. What one thinks, the other thinks. What one feels, the other feels. So don't take that last phrase, this commandment I have from my father, to mean that the father and the son are somehow at odds with each other. And the son, he's so begrudging, he doesn't want to die, and he doesn't want to do what his father says to do, but there's a Trinitarian power play here, and the son yields. The depth of his love for you would be small if that were the case. That's not the case. And he's just bending over backwards here for you to hear his love this morning. Nobody takes my life when I lay it down for you. Nobody, nobody, nobody is taking my life from me. I am free in my love for you. That's how eagerly the Lord wants you to understand his love this morning. Now, this is so important. Let me just walk you through a few illustrations of it. I love these illustrations. Illustrations... From the story of the life of Jesus, of his freedom of love for you this morning. The first one comes from Luke 4. You don't need to look it up. Just listen to the story. Some of you know it. Remember it. Jesus comes to Nazareth, his hometown. A prophet is not without honor except one place. Hometown. Hometown. So he comes into the synagogue. He sits down at the teacher's table. It's interesting. I should try this sometime. Preaching while sitting. Because that's the way they did it. I think it might have been a control on enthusiasm or something. I don't know. It would be hard for me, I'll tell you. So they, they unroll this scroll in front of him. He's sitting. He reads the scroll. He opens his mouth and he says, This prophecy in, in uh, Isaiah 60 has been fulfilled in your hearing. And there's kind of shockwave through the synagogue that the Messiah has come. And he starts to say good things about him. And then he starts to preach. And he preaches by saying, and by the way, remember the widow of Zarephath? Um, she wasn't a Jew. Well, God loved her. And the whole sermon is anti-racist. The whole sermon is to say to the Jewish people gathered there in the synagogue, uh, the blessings are going to overflow to all kinds of peoples. And you know what they did? In a rage, they grabbed him and became a mob. These are hometown people. They know Mary. They know Joseph. 
They grabbed him in a mob, took him out of the city to the edge of a cliff, and were ready to throw him over the cliff, it says. And the next verse says, And he walked through them and went on his way. What is that? This is the dividing of the Red Sea. All over again. Here's the meaning of that story. My hour is not yet come. I will die not one hour early and not one hour late. And he walks through the rest. I'm free! Nobody takes my life from me. Mobs can't take my life from me. Soldiers can't take my life from me. Kings can't take my life from me. If it isn't my time that I choose, I walk through the mist on my way to love my people in my time. Here's the next story. Luke 13. He's on his way up to Jerusalem. He had his face set like flint to go to Jerusalem where they kill all the prophets. And the Pharisees... All kinds of Pharisees, which is an interesting bunch. A little group of Pharisees came to him and they say this. Go away and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Pharisees warning him that the king, Herod, this is Luke 13, 31, Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus says, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons. And perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I reach my goal. (laughs) I love the authority of Jesus. I love the power and right and freedom of Jesus. Why did he call Herod a fox? Now, I, I tried when I'm reading the Bible, not just to read all of my 20th century assumptions back in... You know, a fox means one thing to us today. Coy, sly, sly. Sly, synonym for fox. Sly. Maybe that's it. He's sly. Here is a sly. But I did some poking around in the rabbinic literature to find out things that were said about foxes in Jesus' day. And I found a, a saying. And I don't know if this is behind it or not, but it might be. And it shows the kind of thing that was being thought. There was a saying that said something like, Better to be a lion's tail than a fox's head. Hmm, lion's tail, fox's head. Could Jesus be saying, in fact, I think he was saying, whether he had this thing in his head or not, I think this is what he was saying. He's saying, uh, Herod, you're warning me about Herod. You're warning me about Herod. I'm a lion. He's a fox. You can tell a lion, be careful for a fox. Lions don't worry about foxes. No lion loses any sleep over a fox. Nobody takes my life from me. Nobody. I lay it down of my own accord because I love you. I love you. I love you. Nobody's forcing me into this death for you. I choose it. I time it. I plan it. On the third day, it will happen. Let me go to Gethsemane with you for a couple more illustrations. In Gethsemane, the mob came. Finally, the mob came. The timing is almost ready. The mob came. Judas comes, kisses him on the cheek. 
And Peter pulls his sword out. And he sees what's happening. They're going to take this guy. They're going to kill him. They're going to do something. He looks around. And he goes, what? And this, and this poor slave of the high priest, he sees his sword coming in. He jerks like this. And his right ear goes off his face. And I don't know what happened to his shoulder. How this thing worked. His big bloody mess. And Jesus turns to Peter. This is what he said. Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take the sword shall perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal twelve legions of angels? In other words, Peter, nobody is taking my life from me. Back off. I'm in charge here. Outside the gate, just above there, a little ways, ready to hear this, are 12 legions, 144,000 maybe, angels. They can handle this mob. I'm in charge here. Put your sword away. Nobody is taking my life from me. I am laying it down of my own. And he reaches out, puts his hand on this bloody mess. Can you believe they kept on with their purpose after that? Can you believe that? I'm going to write, a, I'm going to write an advent to him about that guy who lost his ear, felt Jesus' hand, put his hand up there and, and looked and said, you expect me to keep doing this? What, what happened to that guy? We'll find out next Christmas. <laughs> I don't have a clue what happened to him. But I will. He wasn't done yet. He heals him. And then he turns to this mob. Mobs are horrible things. Mobs are so scary. And he speaks these words to the mob. While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. What does, that, what does that mean? This hour is yours. All week long I've been teaching in Jerusalem. You're a big crowd. You've got muscle. You've got all the power on your side. I'm a teacher. I never carry a weapon. I've got 12 guys. Yeah, they're impetuous, but good grief. You've you got everybody. Why didn't you do anything? You think it was because... You chose not to do anything? I'll tell you why you didn't do anything and why you're doing it now. It's because now I give you an hour. I give you an hour. I give you from now. When do you think Jesus rose? I was writing email messages to Africa last night at midnight. And one to Connecticut at midnight. And in every one I said to them, it's five minutes before the day. Imagine how Satan was trembling 
at this hour, 2,000 years ago, as he saw the corpse begin to twitch at midnight. Oh. I want to encourage the missionaries on Easter Eve. I give you one hour. You give me a literal hour. I give you one hour. You can have now until maybe 1 a.m. Sunday morning. And that's it. That's all you get. And he puts his hands down. And he becomes a lamb. A lamb. Goes to the slaughter. Totally in charge. Totally in charge. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. Now, one last illustration of this freedom. This is the one I promised you at the beginning when I said I want you to know that beneath, beneath the struggle, beneath the pain, beneath the abandonment of, of the cross, there's this massive joy. I don't know if you can handle this. I've had experiences like that. I have. And you have too, probably. Hard turmoil in your life and the waves are breaking and you don't know if you can stand and you fall on your knees before the Lord. And there is this great commitment and this great sufficiency and this glorious sense of I'm yours and you're mine and we will make it through this together. And joy is there sustaining the turmoil. Now the text is Psalm 40 verse 8. The reason I refer to it is because in Hebrews 10, 9, the writer quotes it and says, this is a statement about Jesus coming into the world to sacrifice for sins. Okay, so let me read it to you. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will, oh my God. That's where I get it. I delight to do thy will. Now I know he said, Father, thy will, not mine, be done. As though there was some tension there. You know what I think that meant? I think it meant, Father, I'm human. And I don't like the way it feels when nails go through my hand. I don't like long thorns penetrating almost to my brain. I don't like rods on my back, spit on my face, mockery from the people, abandonment from my disciples. All of that hurts like crazy. But, it's the colossal but. Where did that come from? Constraint? Do it anyway. Do it anyway. No way. There was no constraint. The son said, of my own initiative now, I say yes to the cross. I embrace the suffering. I delight to do your will and save my people and defeat their enemies. Can you handle that? That's complex that Jesus could be all of that for us. I think he really was. He loved you. He loved you and he was free. Now we need to close. But I want to link it with the resurrection in just five minutes. To do this, I don't have to go anywhere. All I have to do is read the rest of verse 18. We're back at John 10, verse 18. Look at it with me as we close. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. That's awesome. 
Here's something more awesome. I have authority to take it back up again. When somebody talks like that, they're either crazy or a liar or God. If we had a funeral, well, let's do it this way. If you came to me after the service and said, uh, I can control when I die. I can control when I die. Pull a gun out of your, out of your pocket. Watch this. And before, by the way, before I do this, I, I, I would stop them and say, wait a minute, I believe you. I believe you. I believe you can control when you die. But if they also went on and said, and when you haul me over there to Alvin Chapel, and they start to work on me after about two days, and fill me up with that stuff so that I'll be embalmed, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to get up. Scare them. Then I would, I would grab you and hold you down and call the people with the white coats. Or either I would look at you with a twinkle in my eyes. Put me on. Or I'd worship you. Or I'd worship you. Which is harder? To say, nobody takes my life from me? Or to say, when I lay it down and I'm dead, I, I the dead, can take it again. Which is harder? Well, the second is harder. It's hard to say, I die of my own initiative and I choose the timing of my death. It is 10,000 times harder to say, and when I'm dead, I will choose as a dead man to live again and do whatever is necessary to bring me back to life again. And that's what he said. That's what he said. Why did he say it? And with this, I close. He said it. So that you would hear the forcefulness of the love because of the freedom that it has. If he can do the harder thing by raising himself up from the dead to demonstrate his authority and his freedom and his power, then surely when he said, I lay my life down and nobody takes it from me, he meant it. He had all authority to do that. And therefore, I think the resurrection this morning, I think this is the trumpet blast that the Lord Jesus wants to release over this congregation as we close. My love for you is free. Nobody made me do it. I really wanted to do it for you. Can you believe me? Will you believe my protest of love for you this morning? That's what's in these words. Nobody lays. Nobody takes my life from me. I'm free. I love you. I chose it. I chose it. I'm not constrained. I'm not cornered. I'm not trapped. I'm free. I'm willing. I'm energetic. I'm in this thing because I care about you. And I'm alive, by the way. I'm still alive. And I am loving you now, not just in my death. I'm loving you now. And I will love you forever and ever and ever. And I think his arms go out at this point in the service. And he says, come to me. Come on, you sinners who need a savior. Come on, come to me and believe. Lay down the rebellion 
Open your heart to me. And I will love you forevermore with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my strength. And I want us as we close to look Jesus right in the face with praise and adoration and thanks that it was free. It was free. He chose to love us.